It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. January 24th, 2016. 30-year-old Brittany Harper sat in the passenger seat of a parked car. She was typing a caption to accompany her new photo on Facebook. She smugly pushed share, then looked over at her boyfriend, 30-year-old Blake Fitzgerald. He was in the driver's seat, slowly scrolling through Twitter on his phone. Brittany held out her cell to show him what she had just posted. It was a picture of the couple happily snuggled together. The caption read, Hated by many, wanted by plenty, disliked by some, confronted by none. Blake smiled and kissed Brittany on the cheek. Reaching into his pocket, he pulled out a stolen gun. He pretended to point it at cars on the highway. Brittany laughed. She couldn't believe they were actually doing it. The life of crime, on the run from the cops. To Brittany, it felt like a movie. If all went well, everyone across the internet would know their names. They would live on in infamy just like Bonnie and Clyde. Brittany smiled to herself as Blake started the car. She couldn't imagine loving anyone more than she loved him. Little did she know that in less than two weeks, her beloved boyfriend would be dead. Welcome to the dark side of a ParCast original, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our seventh episode on the dark side of dating. The quest for love may seem like a celebratory, beautiful thing, but its romanticized image conceals all kinds of unpleasant truths. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today, we'll examine the stories of several criminal couples. From Bonnie and Clyde to more modern iterations, the past century has seen a plethora of corrupt duos, pulling off stunts that range from stupid to lethal. For some lovers, the slogan, us against the world, gets taken to a whole new level. 
Anthony and Cleopatra, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, Johnny and June Cash, George and Amal Clooney. History is full of legendary lovers, people whose relationship and reputation have made them the most remembered couples in history. But not all dynamic duos are remembered positively. Some still cause us to shake our heads. Notorious names like Napoleon and Josephine, Ike and Tina Turner, and Britney Spears and Kevin Federline. And of course, who could forget Bonnie and Clyde, the most infamous of them all, the poster children of criminal couples. This Depression-era duo went on a spree that resulted in 13 murders and their own ignoble deaths. And while the tales of their crimes are well known, it is their relationship that has truly fascinated generations of romance nerds. As the tale goes, Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow first eyed each other in 1930 at the home of a mutual friend. At this point, 19-year-old Bonnie had long since separated from her first husband, who was in jail for murder. She had been living at her mother's home in Dallas, Texas, while working as a waitress. As the long, lonely days passed, Bonnie sometimes journaled about her ambitions. She wanted true love, and she wanted to become an actress. While Bonnie dreamed of the silver screen, handsome 21-year-old Clyde was a skilled guitar and saxophone player. Like Bonnie, he dreamed of one day becoming famous. When the pair met in 1930, they were instantly attracted to each other. Bonnie's demure smile captivated Clyde's boyish personality and vice versa. They developed an instant bond of passionate attraction and understanding. The next few weeks were spent in a blissful haze as their hopes and dreams intertwined. But Clyde had already worked up a bit of fame for himself, and not the good kind. His older brother had introduced him to a life of crime, and by the time he met Bonnie, he was wanted by the law for several counts of armed robbery. Clyde was soon caught and put in prison. The sudden interruption in their romance only compounded his feelings for Bonnie. Meanwhile, Bonnie confided to her poor mother that she was hopelessly in love with Clyde, in spite of his being a criminal. She missed him more than she could bear. She had to do something. Desperate to be with him once more, Bonnie smuggled a gun to her boyfriend. Clyde used the weapon to escape, but only briefly. A week later, he was recaptured and thrown into East Ham State Farm. Passionate letters flew back and forth between Bonnie and Clyde. They longed to be reunited, and Clyde was frantic to get out. He even cut off two of his toes in an attempt to be paroled. But this wasn't, in the end, necessary. Clyde's mother had already successfully petitioned for his parole, and two weeks later, in February 1932, Clyde was released. After nearly two years in prison, Clyde knew two things for certain. He loved Bonnie, and he would never go back to prison, no matter what the cost. So, Clyde tried to get an honest job to support himself and Bonnie. He worked briefly at a glass company in Dallas, but the police continued to pester him. Anytime a local crime was committed, they would bring him in for a roundup. 
Clyde's bosses disliked police cars pulling up in front of their building all the time. It reflected poorly on their business, and Clyde was soon let go. Without a job, Clyde quickly resorted to making cash through organized robberies. But it didn't stop there. One theft resulted in Clyde murdering a store owner. After that, he had to go on the run. But Bonnie refused to leave his side. If they couldn't achieve their dreams of becoming famous, they could at least be notorious. Dr. Aaron Benzaev, Ph.D., a psychologist from the University of Haifa, Israel, reminds us of the importance of shared experiences. He says that profound romance results from the combination of intense love and meaningful life experiences. By participating in Clyde's criminal activities, Bonnie had sealed her fate alongside his. Their love intensified through this shared exploit, getting even deeper and more profound. They would be together till the end. In collusion with several other felons, Bonnie and Clyde formed the Barrow Gang. For the next two years, the group went on a crime spree that included car theft, robberies, and even a jailbreak for several of Clyde's comrades back at the East Ham prison. But life on the run was dangerous. The police were always at their heels. In the spring of 1933, authorities found out that the Barrow Gang was hiding in Joplin, Missouri. They tracked down the criminals' whereabouts, and a shootout ensued. Bonnie and Clyde narrowly escaped, but they left behind a roll of film. The photos showed the loving couple posing in front of a stolen car. Clyde was holding Bonnie as she pressed her smiling face against his. In another photo, Bonnie pretended to aim a gun at Clyde, who was looking at her with amusement and affection. There was also a picture of Bonnie by herself, smoking a cigar and holding a pistol against her hip. In the early 1930s, the young female criminal these photos depicted was a novelty. The photos quickly circulated the country, causing a sensation. After all, this was the Great Depression, a time of disillusionment, when hard work was met by relentless poverty. Americans everywhere were riveted by the story of two young lovers who had taken fate and money into their own hands. Everyone watched with bated breath. They knew it was just a matter of time before the long arm of the law caught up with the lovebirds. Then, on May 23, 1934, after two years of robbery, murders, and narrow escapes, Bonnie and Clyde finally reached the end of the race. As they drove down a Louisiana back road, they noticed a friend's father standing next to his truck. Assuming he had broken down, Bonnie and Clyde stopped to help. But their kindness was a mistake. This was a booby trap. No sooner had they parked the car than a police ambush jumped out and opened fire. Both Bonnie and Clyde were instantly riddled with bullets. News of the star-crossed lover's death spread like wildfire. Before the bodies could be taken away, eager onlookers had swarmed the crime scene. One man tried to saw off a piece of Clyde's ear. Others clipped locks of Bonnie's hair and dress. Everyone wanted a piece of the story, no matter how gruesome its end. Nearly 100 years have passed, and the fascination surrounding Bonnie and Clyde's romantic adventures has hardly died down. 
Versions of their relationship have been portrayed in literature, television, and an Academy Award-winning movie starring Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. Some of these renditions portray the pair as a sort of Robin Hood duo, stealing from wealthy citizens and greedy banks. But the truth is quite the opposite. Besides their penchant for stealing cars, most of Bonnie and Clyde's robberies involved small-town grocery stores and gas stations. Their spoils typically amounted to about five or ten dollars. It wasn't much, but for a poor shop owner during the Great Depression, they were still painful losses. Bonnie and Clyde can't be hailed as progressive heroes, but they can be hailed as trendsetters. Their exploits have heralded a string of contemporary criminal couples, pairs who believe that true love justifies true crime. One such duo was Blake Fitzgerald and Brittany Harper. In 2016, they set out to become petty criminals, but their escalating armed robberies and kidnappings ended in a Bonnie and Clyde-esque finale. Prior to this, 30-year-old Blake Fitzgerald had his own criminal record. It included four counts of driving under the influence, a bar fight, and a home invasion. 30-year-old Brittany Harper had less offenses to her name. Like the legendary Bonnie Parker, Brittany had already been through one marriage, which ended in a restraining order against her. In 2010, she had threatened her then-husband with a knife and smashed a metal object on his head. Four years later, in 2014, Brittany had another run-in with the law for possession of methamphetamines and drug paraphernalia. But this was nothing to indicate the crime spree that she would embark on with her new boyfriend, Blake. Not much is known about how Blake and Brittany met, except that their relationship was made Facebook official in early January of 2016. Their exploits began a few weeks later, on January 22nd, with a house robbery in their hometown of Joplin, Missouri. The pair made off with several stolen guns, and local police flagged them as suspects for questioning. But Blake and Brittany had already skipped town. They popped up four days later in Webb City, Missouri. Having stopped at a car dealer, they took a 2009 Cadillac for a test drive and never returned. Over their subsequent 10-day crime spree, Blake and Brittany would slowly make their way across four states. They were ultimately headed to Florida, ostensibly to get married, and they were taking their sweet time to get there. In fact, Blake and Brittany seemed to relish the thrill of their life on the lam. Their escapades were apparently the end game a way to seal their romance and gain notoriety. They just wanted the excitement and the fame and as much time as they could get before their inevitable capture. And they couldn't help but gloat on the internet, with Brittany posting on Facebook several times from a burner cell phone. One of her posts from January 25th apparently bragged, I wasn't planning on going for a run today, but those cops came out of nowhere. Both she and Blake were hoping to get a reaction from the internet, and it wouldn't be long before the responses trickled in. Meanwhile, the couple was growing desperate for cash. In the wee hours of Sunday, January 31st, they pulled into the parking lot of Microtel Inn & Suites in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. 
Kyle Deese, a 26-year-old hotel clerk, was just finishing up his night shift when the couple dragged in. They told him that they had run out of gas. Deese took pity on the weary travelers, allowing them to use the bathroom and help themselves to the coffee in the lobby. But as Blake approached the desk, he pulled out a 45 caliber pistol and demanded money. Deese laughed, thinking it was a joke, but Blake was serious. Blake grabbed the wad of $396 Deese offered him. Then he and Brittany led the hotel clerk outside. They forced him into the backseat of his own Jetta before loading into the front. As they drove into the early morning, Blake and Brittany began to tell Deese their story, how they were in love, broke, and on the run. They said they were headed to Florida to get married, but they also revealed that this was just an excuse they were telling people. It was as if they were creating their own crime documentary, and they were excited to finally have an audience. They didn't know how it would end. They only knew they were prepared to die for each other. But even this ideal was about to be put to the test. Up next, Blake uses Brittany as a human shield. Now back to the story. Sunday, January 31st, 2016. 30-year-old lovers Blake Fitzgerald and Brittany Harper were on the run from the law for stealing firearms in Joplin, Missouri. They had just held up a small hotel in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. The hotel clerk, 26-year-old Kyle Deese, was sitting hostage in the backseat of his own Volkswagen Jetta. Blake and Brittany saw themselves as a modern-day Bonnie and Clyde. At least, that's the narrative they had been developing ever since they had to hightail it out of Joplin. But waiting for websites and newspapers to catch onto their spree was for the birds. They had social media, which was much more powerful for nabbing attention. And they needed to keep their momentum going, which meant figuring out their next move fast before the cops came looking for Deese's car. That's when the couple spotted a woman getting out of her car in a McDonald's parking lot. They swerved to a stop. Blake got out and threatened the woman at gunpoint. She threw her keys across the parking lot and ran. He hopped back in the car and they sped off. A little while later, they dropped Deese off by the side of the road, completely unharmed. Fifteen minutes later, the Jetta swerved into the driveway of a family who was eating their pre-church breakfast. Blake and Brittany kidnapped the mother at gunpoint, forcing her into the family's SUV before driving away in the stolen car. A short while later, the woman was deposited on the side of the road, and the SUV sped off into the distance. These dangerous antics continued throughout the following week, with a gas station holdup in Georgia and two more robberies in the Florida panhandle. Blake and Brittany never fired their stolen guns, but they weren't afraid to wave them around enthusiastically. Meanwhile, the news stations had finally picked up on the story, airing mugshots of the wanted criminals. The authorities were offering $10,000 for information on the suspect's whereabouts. Social media attention began to flow in for Blake and Brittany. Most of it was negative, some of it positive, and all of it was welcome. Tributes in their honor began to sprinkle the Twitter feeds. Even the people who wished them dead were comparing the couple to Bonnie and Clyde. 
others esteemed them with hashtag homages that said, Ride or Die. Blake and Brittany were delighted to see that they had finally captured an audience for their romantic escapades and that they were being compared to history's most famous criminal couple. They couldn't imagine being more proud of themselves or more in love. But the gangster fairy tale couldn't last forever. They had reached Florida, the end of the road, and the cops were closing in. On Thursday, February 4th, Blake and Brittany robbed a famous footwear store in Pensacola, Florida. Before long, the police were hot on their heels, chasing the couple through town and onto the highway. As night approached, Blake and Brittany managed to break free from the pursuit for a couple hours. They held up a Pensacola family, stealing their Chevrolet truck before hopping back onto the road. But they knew it was only a matter of time. Around midnight, the cops finally caught up with the couple as their truck rolled to a stop in the backyard of a local home. Police began shooting at the tires and other deputies escorted the residents out of their house. Blake and Brittany slowly inched out of the truck's driver's side door. Brittany's hands were in the air as Blake crouched behind her. He was using her as a human shield. The cops yelled as the couple continued to inch along the back porch. Suddenly, Blake brandished his 45 caliber pistol. He slammed it against the glass of the back door, hoping to break into the house. But the cops immediately opened fire. Brittany was wounded in the leg. Blake crumpled to the ground. His human shield hadn't worked. He was dead. Brittany was taken into custody. The two most exciting weeks of her life ultimately cost her 19 years in prison, not to mention her boyfriend, the love of her life. The news briefly covered the story, but Blake and Brittany's seconds of fame had come to an end. Throughout the whole ordeal, neither had wanted to commit murder. They only seemed to want the experience to last for as long as possible. It was as if the thrill was its own justification, along with the fame. They wanted to be seen. They wanted the world to witness how dramatic, how powerful their love was. This is not the first time love and power have been associated. The two have a virtually inextricable relationship, and together they can be healthy or incredibly toxic. Licensed counselor and psychotherapist Andrea Matthews describes the latter, saying, Love of power is a compulsive need to control a significant other. We have to make them stay, make them faithful, make them love us. It's not an uncommon problem. Many loving couples have found themselves pitted against each other in a fight for control and security. But for one couple, this struggle ultimately led to a criminal pact. In 1987, 25-year-old recently divorced mother Kathy Wood and her lover, 24-year-old Gwen Graham, murdered five female patients at the Walker, Michigan nursing home where they both worked. They later claimed it was part of a love bond. Each of them wanted to control the other person into staying in the relationship. By killing together, they hoped their lives would be inextricably linked. Neither of them would be able to leave because the other person 
now possessed incriminating information about them. In their minds, the murders represented the permanence of their love. Even the number of victims was allegedly symbolic. At some point in their relationship, Kathy had written a poem to Gwen. It ended with the phrase, forever and five days. Each murder was considered to be one of the five days. It was all part of their special pact designed to keep them together forever. But in the end, it failed. A few months after the killings, Gwen broke up with Kathy and began dating another co-worker. She eventually moved to Texas with her new girlfriend. Kathy was beside herself at the breakup. Forensic psychologists would later find that she was a pathological narcissist, which made losing Gwen's attention especially difficult for her. Kathy eventually confessed the murders to her ex-husband, who in turn notified the authorities. When the case went to trial, Kathy took a plea bargain, confessing as much information as she had to to incriminate Gwen. According to her testimony, Gwen was the dominant partner in their relationship, and it was Gwen who committed the murders by smothering the victims with a washcloth. The meeker Kathy, meanwhile, just kept a lookout. But Gwen claimed the opposite. She insisted the whole idea had been Kathy's and that Kathy had done the actual smothering. She added that towards the end, Kathy had even pointed a gun at her, which prompted Gwen to leave the relationship and move out of state. This conflicting information was further obscured by the fact that both women were diagnosed with different personality disorders. Kathy was diagnosed as a pathological narcissist, while Gwen was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Each woman held the other more responsible for the murders, and it was hard to know who was telling the truth. But in the end, it was Kathy, with her plea bargain, who won. She didn't get off scot-free, but while Kathy received a 20-year prison sentence, Gwen was sentenced to life behind bars. Kathy had achieved the ultimate lover's revenge. The troubled relationship Gwen and Kathy shared is not uncommon among criminal couples. Clinical and forensic psychologist Dr. Joni E. Johnston explains this pattern. Two bad but cowardly eggs get together, and the strength of the dysfunctional relationship pushes them over the edge from dark fantasies into evil deeds. This may have well been the case in Gwen and Kathy's romance. Given their individual backgrounds and psychological problems, both women may have been equally predisposed towards violent behavior. Their relationship would have been a tipping point, the catalyst that pushed the darker sides of their personalities into coordinated action. This is evident in their love bond. Both women seem to have agreed on this bizarre rationale, which speaks to both of their misguided psyches. And while two bad but cowardly eggs can be a recipe for disaster, sometimes it only takes one depraved person to lure another into the life of crime. According to Dr. Johnston, this dominant-submissive dynamic can be another impetus for couple crimes. She describes it saying, A bad egg persuades someone who appears to be a good person, but harbors his or own demons to kill. 
Typically, these crimes are premeditated and led by the most forceful partner in the relationship, the mastermind, if you will. The more submissive partner will either reluctantly or eagerly follow suit. They want to please their dominant counterpart and keep the relationship intact. Besides, they have a dark side of their own. One example of this dynamic is the notorious Lonely Hearts killers of the late 1940s. This couple is suspected of having committed as many as 20 murders during the course of their ill-fated relationship. In 1946, 32-year-old Raymond Fernandez was fresh off the World War II battlefield, where he had sustained a head injury that left him mostly bald. To cover this physical imperfection, Raymond wore a toupee for the rest of his life. Maybe it was a result of head trauma, a psychological inclination, or both. But following the war, Raymond began to consider himself the ultimate ladies' man. This delusion would be compounded by an experience he had in prison. Not long after his injury, Raymond was arrested for small theft. He was sentenced to a year in prison, during which time his cellmate taught him voodoo. He would later claim to harness this dark magic, which he believed gave him irresistible sexual power over women. With his alleged newfound abilities, Raymond turned his attention to the Lonely Hearts ads in the backs of newspapers. As we've learned before, these personal ads originated around 1910 as a way for singles to find potential matches. But they were also hotbeds for scammers like Raymond. This is how Raymond met his first victim, an elderly woman whom he pretended to woo. Raymond eventually left her high and dry, but not before he had raked in most of her money. With a new livelihood and full of self-confidence, Raymond once again returned to the Lonely Hearts ads. This time, he met the eligible bachelorette Jane Thompson, who, after a brief letter correspondence, agreed to a romantic trip to Spain with Raymond. But Thompson mysteriously died while on the trip. Raymond would later claim that Thompson had a heart attack, although he told her mother that she had died in a train wreck. Meanwhile, he had forged Thompson's will so that the deceased woman's money would go to him. With what may well have been his first murder under his belt, Raymond set out for his next victim, Martha Beck. But Raymond was about to meet his perfect match. Martha had a dark side of her own, and it was just waiting to be uncovered. Coming up, Martha and Raymond go on a murdering spree. Now, back to the story. In 1947, 33-year-old Raymond Fernandez was already well-versed in the art of scamming women. By preying upon the newspaper's Lonely Hearts ads, he had managed to swindle a few middle-aged women into forking over money, and he had already murdered at least one. Now he was ready for his next victim, 27-year-old Martha Beck. Little did he know, she would become the perfect accomplice. Martha was an overweight woman, not commonly described as good-looking. And as a result, she hadn't had very much luck with men. When she posted her Lonely Heart ad, she had already been through two pregnancies and a divorce. 
However, she had no criminal background. She was a normal, law-abiding citizen. As the story goes, the pair quickly fell in love. In fact, Martha was so head over heels for Raymond that she quickly deposited both her children at the Salvation Army. She was done being their mother. All she wanted was to be with her new lover. In his own twisted way, Raymond was touched. The fact that Martha would abandon her own children meant that she was truly devoted to him. In turn, he told Martha about his criminal history, which she accepted without qualm. Raymond had found a true confidant in Martha. She was willing to believe whatever he said and ready to do whatever he wanted. He quickly reeled her into his shady enterprise. After establishing a romantic correspondence with his newspaper victims, Raymond would convince them to meet up. A promise of marriage was typically involved, which helped him earn their trust and keep the scam moving as quickly as possible. Once the victim appeared in person, Martha pretended to be Raymond's spinster sister, while Raymond continued to con his sweethearts, who were typically middle-aged women. Raymond would gradually convince them to fork over money or sign away their financial assets. Then he would abandon them, or worse. In 1948, Raymond and Martha traveled to Cook County, Illinois. Raymond had convinced one of his pen pals, Myrtle Young, to pack all her belongings and meet him there to marry. And marry they did. It was all part of the ruse. But Martha was not about to let Raymond consummate the marriage. The pair stuffed Young with sleeping pills, snatched $4,000 from her purse, and propped her on a bus bound for Little Rock, Arkansas. By the time the bus arrived at her destination, Young had to be carried out by police. She was dead the next day. In 1949, another woman, 66-year-old Janet Fay, moved to Long Island, New York, so that she could live with Raymond and Martha. Raymond had promised to marry her, though in reality, he was scamming her out of her savings. But the plan went sour when Martha found Raymond and Fay in bed together. She was filled with rage, but not at Raymond. In her mind, Raymond could do no wrong. This was all Faye's fault, and she had to be punished. Martha grabbed a hammer and rushed over to the bed. She succeeded in brutally wounding, but not killing the unsuspecting woman. But poor Faye wouldn't survive. Raymond quickly jumped into action, strangling his would-be lover with a scarf. A few weeks after Faye's murder, the pair had moved in with their last Lonely Hearts victims, 41-year-old widow Delphine Downing and her two-year-old daughter, Raynell. But Downing was suspicious of the pair. Something seemed off about their relationship, and she didn't fully trust Raymond, who on paper had seemed almost too good to be true. Upon voicing her concerns, Raymond convinced Downing to take calming pills. These were sleeping pills, which sent the woman into a deep slumber. Raynell was distressed by her mother's stupor and began to cry, prompting Martha to attempt to choke the girl until unconscious. Worried that Downing would wake up and notice the bruises on her daughter's neck, 
Raymond wrapped Delphine's dead husband's pistol he'd retrieved from the next room in a towel and shot her point blank. Raynell survived her mother, but not for long. Eventually, Raymond and Martha drowned her and buried both bodies in the basement. Then, looking for an activity to help them unwind, they went to the movies. When they returned to the house, police were waiting to question them. While Raymond and Martha undoubtedly killed Delphine and Raynell Downing, they were ultimately convicted for just one murder, that of 66-year-old Janet Fay. This is because she had been killed in New York, where the death sentence was in effect. A few months after their conviction, the sensational Lonely Hearts killers were executed by electric chair. Just like Bonnie and Clyde, they had schemed together and died together. To this day, it is believed that Raymond and Martha may have been responsible for up to 20 killings. Criminal couples, even killer couples like the Lonely Hearts killers, are one of love's darker phenomena. For many, it's a bonding experience, the chance to share a dark secret among the many other intimacies that come with being in a relationship. And in spite of the possibility of being caught and locked away from each other, couples still engage in crime as an exciting pastime. Anything from robbery to sexual assault can be on the table as two lovers seek to intensify their relationship. Forensic psychologist Dr. Thomas Powell describes this motivator, saying, It's rooted in a lot of negative relationship issues, anger being one of them, power being another, and frustration. There's usually a pretty high level of frustration in the world. It turns out that being in love, one of the happiest feelings on Earth, can ultimately be just another outlet for emotional angst and sinister proclivities. So next time you meet someone who seems like the love of your life, ask yourself how far you would go for that person and how far that person would go for you. If the answer is too far, it's best to steer clear. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of... We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all of ParCast Originals on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Ali Wicker, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs> <laughs> 